Like John the Baptizer, climate scientists were voices crying in the wilderness, calling for repentance, beseeching us to turn from our ways of life that led to death, and warning us of the consequences if we didn't. And, as John experienced, their warnings have often gone unheeded by political, religious, and business leaders, and by many of the rest of us. That's the Reverend Talitha Arnold, and today she shares an inspiring message of Advent faith called The Fire This Time. I'm Peter Wallace. It's day one. Welcome to Day One, the weekly program that brings you outstanding preachers from America's historic Protestant churches, sharing insight and inspiration from God's Word for your life. Now to introduce this week's preacher, here's our host, Peter Wallace. Thank you, Sherry. Today on Day One, as we continue in the season of Advent, we're delighted to welcome the Reverend Talitha Arnold, Senior Minister of the United Church of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Talitha came to the church in 1987 when it was a relatively new congregation of the United Church of Christ. An Arizona native, Talitha is a graduate of Pomona College and earned her Master of Divinity from Yale Divinity School. She was interim associate university chaplain for Yale and served congregations in Connecticut and Arizona before being called to United Church of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Talitha, welcome to day one. Thank you, Peter. It's great to be back again, and I appreciate both you and Donald and everybody else who makes this radio show possible, uh, not just for me, but for all the other preachers you, you engage and also for the listening congregation. Well, thank you. You preached on day one over a year and a half ago, but introduce us to the people in the ministry of United Church of Santa Fe. Well, thank you. We are uh, the United Church of Santa Fe. We are a United Church of Christ congregation located in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, The church was founded in 1980 as part of a group of new church starts that the denomination was doing in the Southwest. Mm -hmm. And I was called to be the pastor in 1987. So we just celebrated a few months ago my 35th year with the church. (laughs) But the reality is that um, it's been like serving six or seven different congregations (laughs) because like many churches and especially new churches in their early years, every five years um, is a new congregation. Mm. And especially in a place like Santa Fe where people move in and out Mm -hmm. of the the area a great deal. Um, And especially the last three years, which as another pastor friend of mine says, should be measured in dog years, (laughs) meaning that one year equals seven years of one's Mm -hmm. life. And I think that's sort of been on steroids over the last two and a half, three years of the pandemic and everything else that has gone on. But nonetheless, I've been there for 35 years. Um, It's a great congregation. Uh, It's comprised both of people who've moved to Santa Fe from other places and also people who grew up in Santa Fe. Worship uh, is the very center of our life together. We try to make it engaging and inclusive, uh, true to the biblical texts that are the texts for the day, and also open to the community, the world, the lives of the people of the congregation, and the life of the world around us. Mm. We have great music, a wonderful choir, and a fantastic choir director who kept us going even during all the days of lockdown and Mm. virtual church. 
we try to be an intergenerational, multi-generational community and are slowly rebuilding our children's and youth ministry after two and a half years of pandemic. Our motto at the church is love God, love neighbor, and love creation, Mm. which means that we've always been involved in the community around us in a variety of ways and uh, figuring out new ways during the pandemic to do that. Mm -hmm. And we also really see ourselves as located in the high desert, Mm. that many of the people coming to the church, engaged in the church, have moved to Santa Fe, moved to the desert west from very different landscapes, landscapes that are filled with flowery meadows, flashing seas, Mm -hmm. um, all kinds of green environments, um, maybe even some who move from places where there's kudzu. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And they move out to the desert southwest and sometimes can feel like they're living on the moon. Mm -hmm. But one of our missions as a church is to be a desert faith for a desert people for a desert time and let the desert shape us as, as faithful people. Let us learn our lessons from that desert space and desert landscape. Mm. So that's the church. And you mentioned the pandemic, and I don't think any of us expected to still be dealing with it for this long. You you mentioned the dog ears. (laughs) Say more about how your church has evolved in spite of the pandemic. Um, Thank you. I think every church is continuing to evolve. That, you know, the first year we were completely virtual, Um, I preached in an empty sanctuary. We did recorded services. We patched together readings that people would do on their cell phones at Mm. home and got music from various kinds of sources. We did use that time to help expand our understanding of the global Christian church. And what I mean by that is that Oftentimes for music, we would we would look to other sources other than our own choir, mm. um, but and, and we're able to you know engage African American spirituals, Hispanic folk tunes, uh, folk hymns, uh, Spanish music, uh, music from Asia, all different kinds of places, and other Christians singing their faith and being able to do that both with video and still pictures and also certainly the songs themselves was a way of helping our congregation in Santa Fe, New Mexico, engage the fact that people of faith who call themselves Christian are all around this world Mm. and have engaged this faith in all kinds of ways. We did a similar kind of thing oftentimes to illustrate the scripture. Rather than just a talking head of someone Mm. reading scripture, the scripture would be read, but then we would also have pictures from from the Italian Renaissance or contemporary Cameroon Christians, pictures from Mexico mm-hmm. um, by Mexican artists or South American artists illustrating the same story in all different kinds of ways across generations, across cultures that, again, helped us understand and engage those stories in a multiplicity of ways, not only through the written word or the spoken word, but also through the images. Mm-hmm. Because the Christian faith has been an image-based faith for a very long time, mm-hmm. certainly for the first 1,500 years. So that was one way we, we worked with worship. And really, I think as I've said to you, uh, one of the real challenges for us early on, as I think for every church, was that we shut down in-person services right before Holy Week. Yes. And so two, two and a half years ago. And so that meant we had to really step back and say, okay, what is the essence of Palm Sunday? What is mm. the essence of Monday, Thursday? What's the essence of Good Friday? What even is the essence of of Easter Sunday if you can't have you know, a sanctuary filled with people and yeah. Easter lilies and the Hallelujah Chorus, 
then go back to the story and go back to the story and, you know, read the fact that the first Easter didn't take place in <laughs> in, in a sanctuary filled right. with hallelujah choruses. It took place outside at an empty tomb. It took place with a handful of people. It took place perhaps in an upper room, um, some of the disciples' first experience of the risen Christ, or on the road to Emmaus. So all of that made us rethink what is the essence of worship. And then in the same way, Peter, I think over the last two and a half years, we and every other congregation have had to think through what is the essence of our mission, of our work, our ministry with the communities around us. Mm. Um, if you can't you know, provide a home-cooked meal at the, at the shelter for persons who are unhoused, how can we still maintain that important connection? Mm-hmm. Uh, if we can't take a, a trip to the to Navajo land to learn about firsthand from the peoples who've lived here on this land for thousands of years, the Navajo Diné or the Pueblo people, how can we remind ourselves and stay connected with our brothers and sisters, our kindred, who are going through such a difficult time as Native and Indigenous peoples have during out the, throughout this pandemic? Mm-hmm. So it really forced us to rethink and reset um, our ministries in a whole lot of ways. I think that challenge has continued because we're not going back to where we were yes. um, prior to March of 2020. Um, things were already changing significantly for churches even before the pandemic, and now we're in a whole different mode, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking with my friend Jerry Henry, um, who is a consultant with churches. He and I went to seminary together, and we both were concurring that you know, the first two years of the pandemic were pivot, <laughs> mm. <laughs> like every single day, every right. single hour. Um, and now it's more reset. Mm. How do we, again, go back? What is the essence of what we're called to be about as congregations, as a church, wherever we are, whether it's in Atlanta or New Mexico or any place in between or beyond? And what is our ministry? What is our congregation? What are we going to look like? Mm. How can we be faithful in this time? And it's a challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, It's a challenge uh, for all of us, I think. Well, Talitha, this is the second Sunday of Advent. How do you approach this time of preparation for the birth of Jesus? (laughs) I try to get my Christmas shopping done by August. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the ways uh-huh. <laughs> so that because, uh, you know, if I don't do that, my family, which is spread out throughout the country, they don't get their Christmas presents until the next 4th of July. That's one <laughs> way. I approach it with these scriptures as hard as they may be mm. at times. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a time in which I pretty much, I mean, I, you know, I'm United Church of Christ, so I'm not bound by the lectionary, mm-hmm. but I find that I do... I always in Advent do lectionary preaching Mm. because consistently the four scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, the Psalm, the Epistle, the Gospel, they all challenge me to step back from all the busyness of the season and really, again, once again, get to what is this Christmas thing about? What is Advent about? How do I prepare? How do I help a congregation prepare? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's um, for me that is one of the blessings of Scripture that it, in the midst of all the other things about 
are we going to have enough candles for Christmas Eve? Who's going to come? Uh, what are we doing? You know, is the what is the choir going to sing? Um, how do we how do we make sure that we care for our neighbors, our global neighbors, and our local neighbors in Santa Fe throughout mm-hmm. this season and beyond? All of those questions are the bulletins going to get done, et cetera, et cetera. Being called back to being faithful to the scripture, and what I mean by that is not you know not faithful necessarily to what I think it says, um, but faithful to engaging it and letting God get to me and to the congregation by engaging these ancient texts, some of which are contradictory with one another, some of which have different tones, mm-hmm. even in the among the four. Uh, scriptures, some of which are deeply prophetic, like like this one, and others that are, I think, deeply pastoral, and how to figure that out mm-hmm. in the midst of it. Your sermon is based on the very challenging gospel lesson for this Advent Sunday from Matthew chapter 3. Would you read it for us? Sure. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him, and all the region along the Jordan. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many religious leaders coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Word of God, word of life. Well, Talitha, your sermon is titled, The Fire This Time. Thanks for sharing it with us. Thank you. I did not want to write this sermon. I did not want to deal with this scripture from Matthew. Not on the second Sunday of Advent. Not three weeks before Christmas, when churches will be filled with people wanting to hear the shepherds cooing over the baby Jesus, but are instead confronted with gaunt, fashion-challenged John the Baptist, yelling at them to repent. 
It's already a struggle to keep the congregation from singing Christmas carols or putting up the Christmas tree. Do we really have to talk about this steely-eyed, sun-wrinkled prophet preaching, Repent! Repent! Or be ready for the fire! Another preacher once said of John the Baptist, He's not someone you'd invite to a dinner party. Why then do we let him show up three weeks before Christmas? Couldn't this passage wait until Lent? There's another reason I didn't want to preach this sermon or deal with this scripture. I know about unquenchable fire. I live in the western United States, Santa Fe, New Mexico, to be exact, where this past April, two fires broke out in the mountains north of here, merged into the largest fire in New Mexico history, and burned out of control for months. The normally crystalline blue skies of northern New Mexico were gray with ash and smoke. Hundreds of people were evacuated, including members of the congregation I serve. By the time the rains finally came, fire had consumed 400,000 acres of some of the loveliest forest and meadows you've ever seen. No human lives were lost, but the death toll of other creatures was unfathomable. Deer, bear, bobcats, rabbits, lizards, snakes, and the fish in the rivers and streams now polluted with ash. The fire also devastated historic Hispanic communities that date back to the late 1700s and early 1800s, and destroyed the livelihood of hundreds of Nortenos who depend upon the forest and grazing land for food, wood, and other resources. It wasn't the first such fire in northern New Mexico. In May 2000, a crown fire in the Hemis Mountains near Santa Fe burned 50,000 acres and forced the evacuation of 20,000 people from the city of Los Alamos, the birthplace of the atom bomb. Ten years later, the Conscious Fire again threatened Los Alamos and burned 150,000 acres, the largest fire in the state's history up to that point. At the time of last spring's Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon Fire in northern New Mexico, 20 other fires were also burning throughout the state. This year, as in the last two decades, wildfires have raged from California to Nebraska, Texas to Alaska, and they are bigger and hotter than anything we've seen before. Moreover, Fire season in the West used to begin in June, not April. Now it's year-round. Last year, a week after Christmas, a wildfire swept through a subdivision in Boulder County, Colorado, killing two people and destroying hundreds of homes and buildings. Fire has always been a fact of life in the mountain and desert West. For centuries, it was nature's way of restoration and renewal, burning away the underbrush to let stronger trees grow and the forest flourish, not unlike John's call to repentance and the need to clear away the deadwood of our lives to let new life grow. But the past decades of these unquenchable fires are something new. Seventy years of fire suppression and poor management have resulted in sickly matchbox forests that stretch from Arizona to Alaska. In addition, the West is in a mega drought, the driest period in 1,200 years that sucks the moisture out of both trees and grasslands. 
Mega drought leads to mega fires, scorched earth infernos that burn the dirt until it's hard as concrete. As a result, once the rains come, fires are followed by floods. If it sounds apocalyptic, it is. And if it sounds like John was right, that we humans bear at least some responsibility for bringing on such unquenchable fire, we do. For over four decades, study after study has demonstrated our human role in climate change and global warming. Like John the Baptizer, climate scientists were voices crying in the wilderness, calling for repentance, beseeching us to turn from our ways of life that led to death, and warning us of the consequences if we didn't. And, as John experienced, their warnings have often gone unheeded by political, religious, and business leaders, and by many of the rest of us. Such disregard has consequences, in John's time and in ours. Even now, John cried, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What was true for John's listeners is also true for us. At least in the West, we are being baptized with fire. And we can't blame God or Mother Nature for this fiery baptism, nor for any of the other results— floods, hurricanes, sea surges, king tides, of our human role in warming the planet and changing the climate. Like the crowds that flock to John, we have responsibility for our choices and the impact those choices have on creation and on our neighbors all around the world. For those of us in the West, along with our prayers for rain to end fires, we need also to pray for the strength and will to repent. Unquenchable fires, calls to repentance, cries in the wilderness, and gaunt, fashion-challenged, fire-breathing John the Baptist. So do you see why, especially three weeks before Christmas, I didn't want to engage the scripture or preach this sermon? But Three weeks before the birth of the one who showed us God's love by pointing to the birds of the air and the grass of the field. The birth of the one whose ways of life and love overcame all our ways of death. The birth of the one God gave us because God so loved this world. May this hard scripture call us to repent, to turn from death to life, not only for ourselves, but for this planet and for generations yet to come. May John's cry in the wilderness bring us back to the creator of heaven and earth. May his cry change our lives that we might love this world, its peoples, its grasses, its forests, its fields, this earth as God so loves. Thanks be to God. Amen. You've been listening to the Reverend Talitha Arnold, Senior Minister of United Church of Santa Fe, New Mexico, a United Church of Christ congregation. 
For a free transcript of our sermon today, The Fire This Time, call us at 404-815-9110. That's 404-815-9110. Or write to us at Day 1, 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia 30305. Keep in mind that Day 1 depends on the financial offerings of our faithful listeners. Please send your gift to Day 1. 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305. We're grateful for your help. I'm Peter Wallace. Next week on Day One, Talitha Arnold returns with a powerful message for the third Sunday of Advent called, And the Desert Shall Bloom. I hope you'll join us next week on Day One. Now, our day one preacher, Talitha Arnold, offers some final reflections about her sermon today, The Fire This Time. And Talitha, you opened your sermon asking, why do we have to deal with this steely-eyed, sun-wrinkled, fashion-challenged John the Baptist at this time of year when we're all yearning for the joy of Jesus' birth? But I guess Advent is all about preparing ourselves for that, so we must deal with John's call to repentance. But what does repentance really mean for believers? I would go back to the original meaning, metanoia, Mm. which is to turn, to change. It's not just beating our breasts saying, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, or I'm sorry. Mm. It's I am sorry to the depths of my being, and I will, to the best of my ability, and with God's help, try to do things differently. And I think that's true whether the call to repentance is on an individual basis or in a friendship or a family relationship or a work relationship or something I have done either inadvertently or consciously has hurt someone else. Mm. Simply saying I'm sorry for me is not enough. I also have to say... What can I learn? Mm. Um, What do I need to know? How can I do things differently? And I think that's true in a more prophetic kind of call that John is calling to, that it's, you know, turn away from those things that that don't make for life. And Mm. he, he has particular issue with the political and religious, and I would even say economic leaders of his day, Mm. because Mm. all of that got mushed together in Jesus' time, just as it does Mm -hmm. in ours. And that it's saying, look at what you're doing, either individually or together, as a community, as a nation, as a church, as a business. And what do you need to do differently? What must you do differently um, in order to be more about life. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the phrase I oftentimes use is that we follow in the ways of Jesus Christ because he showed us how to turn from our ways of death to God's ways of life. That's what repentance for me is about. Yeah. Talitha, what's one thing from your sermon today that you hope our listeners will carry with them in the days ahead? That to do that... 
to repent, and especially as it relates to caring for, loving for creation, loving creation, caring for creation, caring for the environment, whatever, addressing climate change. It is part and parcel of our call as Christians that repentance is not just something, you know, oh, I'm a bad person or no, I don't love Jesus enough or whatever. Well, loving Jesus, loving God means loving the world that God created. Mm. That's what I hope people might take away from this, mm. that, you know, the one who was born in, in the stable in Bethlehem, who, as I say in the sermon, looked to the birds of the air and the grass of the field, looked to farmers and shepherds caring for the land, who gave his life for those who were often overlooked, the mm. poor, the disenfranchised, the, the sick, that if we love Jesus, then we got to love the people Jesus loved, mm. and we got to love this creation that Jesus loved and that God gave Jesus to us because of love for this world. Mm. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It doesn't get more basic than that, I think, as we get ready for Christmas. Mm. Loving this world. Talitha Arnold, thank you for being with us, and we look forward to having you back next week. (laughs) Thank you, Peter. Day One is the voice of America's mainline Protestant churches. Visit us online at dayone.org. Thank you for joining us. I'm Sherry Miller wishing you all God's blessings on Day One and forever. Forever.